five, four, three, two, one. I'm John Miglosh for the WDMA. We're going to be talking about acquisition and customer lifetime value and that kind of stuff today. Okay. And uh, I think it's going to be interesting, hopefully entertaining. And uh, but before that, I want to share a, uh, a video, just pieces of a video by Mark Rober. Um, I've been following drone delivery for quite a while um, because I think the more economical and speedy the delivery, the more uh, attractive remote buying becomes, which was a big thing in the 80s. You know, only half the households would buy remotely. Um, we called it direct, <laughs> direct marketing and and. And uh, but it was the least direct, you know, it, the, the direct marketing is like buying a hot dog on the on the on the street in New York City. And we're going to talk about New York City next next week. I've got one all queued up for that. But for now, let's get over to um, let's get over to Mark Rober. And this is a little drone um, that uh, that he's highlighting. He, it's not sponsored. And it's a. Uh, and I was supposed to put that up first so that it would it would give me a thumbnail for the uh, for the <laughs> LinkedIn, which doesn't let me have a thumbnail. Uh, at least I don't think I had one. I don't remember. Anyway, I've got too many buttons to push. This is something that dro that drops packages right right where you want them, right on your tabletop or something like that. And uh, but what was really inspiring to me was a lot of a lot of drone deliveries being pioneered by Zipline in Rwanda, and they've delivered more than half a million packages without uh, in injury, which is the main thing. They didn't say none of them crashed or or, or anything, but they do have parachutes in the drones. And um, and I was really impressed with the country of Rwanda. So let's get over there and listen to that part. Now I moved my mouse, and I got to get back to where where it belongs here. Okay, one more little tick. There it goes. About Rwanda was the Rwandan genocide that took place about 30 years ago. And while there are still plenty of battle scars, as horrific as that was, it sort of galvanized the country into a period of healing and solidarity as a single Rwandan people instead of divisive ethnic groups. For example, on the last Saturday of the month, literally everyone spends the day picking up trash and volunteering in their local communities. And that's one of the reasons you hardly see litter anywhere. The other one being 15 years ago, they were one of the first countries to ban all single-use plastics. There was just a pervasive optimism in the air. Everyone was moving with the purpose everywhere we went. Not just working hard, but working smart with their resources on hand, yeah, including their improvised soccer balls. For over a decade, attending school up to age 16 has been both mandatory and free. And when you combine that with leapfrogging to new technologies like drone delivery, for the last drones. decade, their economy has been growing at four times the rate of the U.S. economy, while their violent crime rate has been 15 times less than the U.S. And finally, the most inducing part of the whole trip was when I hiked to see an entire okay. family of mountain gorillas up close in the wild, which was equal parts adorable and terrifying. So anyway... <laughs> So anyway, uh, you know, I did the thing on Maslow and the self-focus of it and how you can't, you, you have to have your needs met before you can meet the needs of others, kind of the idea of it. And um, there, it's not without some merit. I mean, obviously, if, uh, if you, you know, if you can't, uh, if you don't have any inventory, don't sell a product, right? You got to have basics, right? you can do all the fancy stuff and do all the sustainability and all that but 
what impressed me is Rwanda. I don't know much about the Rwanda genocide, except that millions of people were were killed with machetes. So it's not just guns that are dangerous. It's people that are dangerous. And uh, and somehow they've come through that. And somehow, not only have they come through it, hello, Donna, um, somehow not only have they come through it, but their country is thriving. And I especially like the war on on litter and picking up the trash. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I have trouble picking up stuff, but I still stop. And the other day I was in a parking lot and picked up a, you know, a plastic bottle just because that's the way, that's the way it should be. We should all pick up a little of the, of the trash of the world. Um, and the world's gotten a lot trashier, uh, in the last few decades, in my opinion. Anyway, so, uh, that was a very optimistic look at what, a country can do with purpose. So if you think it's bad here in the United States, let's just say you think it's bad. Let's just say you think it's bad because Trump hasn't been arrested yet or because he might be arrested. Whatever side you're on. Think about a country where where they're hacking each other to death 30 years ago and now they're working together and picking up the trash and the country has a purpose. Let's Let's get past this before we hack each other to death. <laughs> okay, that said, uh, I was on the uh, the the David Baird, Ken Cook. Um, they sent me the link and I forgot it. But anyway, we had we have our book club, our weekly book club on Thursday afternoon, and it was the Challenger. And now I got to switch over to. The, I didn't do this yesterday, and I got a lot of views or a lot of impressions, whatever that means. And so maybe I should never show you the articles. The other articles generally look very boring. And what's the point of this? But um, we could put it on a graph for the moment. It's a really great graph. Okay. Um, but they, they, the book was Challenger Selling. And they decided I was a challenger because I challenge everything. <laughs> I read every direction. And so uh, – and the president and President Biden is in Canada. Oh, <laughs> oh, David just sent the link in. Agency Book Club. If people interact with me on this show, I'll never get anywhere. <laughs> okay, so you can you can find out about agencybookclub.com, and we we you know we generally review sales and business books, and it's really interesting. But anyway, they decided that I challenge everything. And so the only way that, that I can help, that it really can help people is if I, if I, if you invite me into my, into your company to figure out what's really going on, because that, that is my strength. I can, I can challenge your assumptions, challenge your numbers and give you alternatives on what's really going on in order to make you a lot of money. <laughs> and I've done it over and over and over and over. I had I, I said 29 times, but now it's up into the 30s where I'm actually documenting as part of my third edition of my book. I'm documenting uh, some of the some of the change agency and explosive growth that that I've been a part of. And uh, but most, you know, it's just it's just I'm the Yoda, you know, and I'm, I'm going to point you in the right direction, hopefully. Um, so here's a graph, nifty graph, and it shows acquisition cost, okay? And one of the first things I noticed about this graph that I didn't like was that the acquisition cost only barely increases. Now, if you've been around in digital, let's just say, digital went up like three, 400% in the last three years, okay? Your cost per click, you know, 
if you're in digital, right? Your your cost per uh, banner ad on Amazon, um, Google, Facebook, doesn't matter. Massive, massive price increases, right? And if you're in direct mail, it's, you know, people complain about the postage increases and that's part of it and printing increases, right? And paper shortages and all the rest. But so acquisition cost is rarely ever that flat, almost never, right? And this author, see if we got, now oh, the author is mentioned up there. This author shows that uh, the customer acquisition cost is flat. Lifetime value is just massively increasing. That's great. It's almost as if there's no cost to reinforcing the order pattern. And that's a, a, a big flaw in most lifetime value. Most of the time they take initial acquisition and then the customer repeat orders and repeat orders and repeat orders. And they don't count all of the hits whether it be mail or email or, you know, whatever you do to reinforce your customer. And in e-commerce, basically, they do almost nothing. And for that reason, lifetime value is a concept that really needs to get hammered home in e-commerce. Because, you know, in the, in, the, in the happy days when you could just put up, you know, a product somewhere and uh, Instagram or TikTok or something and you could sell, you know, you could sell it one time. And you can still do that, right? And if you have a little bit of skill, you can sell a lot of product one time to each customer. But wouldn't it be great if you could have repeat customers? That's the foundation of a Land's End and a L.L. Bean and, and some of the great people that we have in the roundtable, Mailers Roundtable here in Wisconsin. Uh, we have some of the best mailers in the world right here. Some of the best, you can call them e-commerce companies, but their foundation is catalog. So it's called the best we probably have five or six, maybe more, of the best catalog companies in the world, right here in a, in the United in Wisconsin. So, um, so it's fun when we get together, and uh, that's part of what the mission is of WDMA is to get us mailers together. But anyway, so this is a great ratio, but you know it, it understates the cost, and of course acquisition cost almost never includes um, cost of goods, cost of order processing. Uh, overhead, right, per order. And so, anyway, let's go on to the next. <laughs> let's go on to the next article. These will all be in the show notes, right? Oops, this isn't the next article. This will all be in the show notes. Here we go. This was a real. This was actually a pretty good article. Uh, customer lifetime value in e-commerce. Okay, I was looking for that concept because I don't think it is well articulated in e-commerce. Right? I just don't. I mean, it's the way it is. Okay, so uh, e-commerce business owners and marketers often find themselves busy tracking and analyzing countless business stats, charts, lists, and graphs. Don't get us wrong. The numbers can be helpful. As the good old saying goes, what gets measured gets managed. Now, I don't know if that's the good old saying. I actually went and looked it up because I knew that there was a saying by Edward uh, W, Dr. W. Edwards Deming, who said, you can't manage what you can't measure. Okay, that's one of the famous lines. But he also said, the most important figures that one needs for management are unknown or unknowable. And that gets lost sight of today. You know, I gave a talk on measurement way back in probably the late 80s. And I, I said, the day will come when we can measure everything. That doesn't mean we'll measure the right things. I asked 
young people sometimes. How do you think we ran companies, really ran companies, millions of dollars of companies? How did we run them without computers? Or we didn't even have an accounting computer. And they look at me like, yeah, that would be impossible. Not only didn't we have the internet, we didn't even have a bookkeeping computer. We had paper, right? How do we do it? Well, we kept track of the important stuff. And that's been largely forgotten. Okay? So it, the, what's, what's not measured probably doesn't get managed, but there's a lot of things that are important that are difficult, if not impossible, to measure. And this article doesn't quite grasp that, unfortunately. It does connect some dots that are really, really good to connect. Okay, one critical measure, metric that should be at the center of your business strategy is customer lifetime value. Okay, now, I've done a lot of consulting and a lot of calculating of customer lifetime value. But one of the most interesting things, because it was really, really, really popular in the mid-80s, Okay, everybody needed to have their customer lifetime value. Why? Well, because Martin Baer, who kind of came up with the concept, uh, who I consider a friend, I challenged Martin a lot too. Uh, but Martin was in term life insurance, and uh, and he realized that 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 term life insurance, the the profitability of term life insurance, m flowed out through time. And yet his marketing budget was constrained because they basically looked at what's the what's the initial payment and and what does it cost to get to that point? What's the customer acquisition cost versus the initial payment? And he said, well, the initial payment isn't the only relevant thing. It's the subsequent stream of payments and we can calculate the decay as people cancel their life insurance. And in fact, the decay is a is a benefit to the life insurance company because if they cancel before the death benefit is paid out, then the insurance company keeps all the money. And so not only did he encourage uh, the the looking at the downstream revenue, but he also didn't worry about increasing the retention, extending the retention. Right. So there wasn't a lot. You've probably never gotten a, a letter from your life insurance company saying, we hope you stay with us till the day you die. We love you till the day you die. No, they don't do that because they want you to cancel the day before you die or somewhere in there because then they keep all your money. Make sense? OK, so life so customer lifetime value for Martin was a very predictable thing. And he took into account the cost of money you know the insurance the uh, interest rates and all kinds of things so that he could eke out every penny that he could spend on acquisition okay and it was very 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 predictable and so then it got picked up and people tried to apply it to the catalog industry and it was like oh wait a minute wait a minute i said <laughs> because i'm the challenger remember i said well wait a minute in the catalog industry you, you can keep on going and you can, you can pass along your catalog to your friends. You can get your kids to buy. You know, my kids buy from Land's End. My daughter buys her kids clothes from Land's End. Now, it might be at the thrift shop, I admit, but she sure does know about the quality of Land's End, right? Okay? I started buying from them in the 70s. So I was a sailor. 
and they started as a sailing company. I mean, a sailing accessory company. There was a, there was a regatta on Lake Michigan and everybody got soaked to the skin and everything got soaked in, in the boat. And, uh, and, uh, Gary Comer said, we should have some good duffel bags. I'm going to go into the duffel bag business. And that's how Land's End got started, believe it or not. Something like that. I probably got that wrong, but anyway, uh, Anyway, so I knew about Land's End in the 70s, and I kept buying, and I've been buying ever since. So there is, and they send me lots of catalogs, and I always have them around, but I've been trying to clean up the office, so I can't grab one really handy right now, but they'll send me another one. <laughs> okay, so what's my lifetime value? Don't know. I, I couldn't tell you. How much have they spent in mailing me catalogs over the years? <laughs> I don't know. Thousands, maybe? Hundreds? Hundreds of dollars? Probably hundreds at least, you know, at a buck a piece figure, adjusted for inflation. You know, how much have they spent picking my order? All of that comes into play. But on the balance, I bet I'm profitable for them, right? And that's how you create legacy businesses that go on forever and ever and ever, okay? But anyway, this thing goes on and says, what is customer lifetime value? Customer value, lifetime value measures the total revenue you make from an average customer over time and the big problem with this article is this word average you can measure the flows on average but to do that you almost need to have some idea of the costs that you're spending on each customer because each customer is unique and that's one of the things we have done differently but the other problem with this there's a couple of, you know, remember it was popular in the 80s. So I would go in and I would calculate this stuff up. You know, basically the same thing. And I would say, okay, you're, every customer you acquire within two years is worth, let's just say, $10 of profit. Okay? Taking all the costs we can figure out. In two years, they're worth, they're, they're worth $10. And so I'd say to the founder, owner, usually, I'd say, well, what's, so what are you going to spend on customer acquisition? And one of the important things in this concept is the more valuable your customers are, each or on average, the more you can afford to spend on acquisition, which is exactly Martin Bear's point. That, that's a great point. Most people, most companies focus all their energy on driving down the cost of acquisition getting customers as cheaply as possible. And the problem with that is, is that oftentimes the cheaply acquired customers are not the most valuable, right? And it's not hard to believe. So consistently, since the beginning of the internet, when I've assessed the downstream value, let's just take the, the net profit per customer within two years of acquisition, something simple like that. That's a little simpler. Uh, it's like the net return on investment spend. So you buy a machine tool, how, what's the pay, payback period? Or what is the profit within a, a given period? You can look at it a lot of different ways. And the, but, the, but the owner of the company, I say, well, it's your, your, your customer lifetime value is $10. So you, know, you could spend, as a naive young consultant, you could spend $10 acquiring customers. And in two years, you get a payback. And he'd say, oh, I'd never do that. <laughs> he said, the most I'll spend is $3. Well, how did how'd you come to that? Well, I don't trust those numbers. <laughs> and it wasn't that he didn't trust my numbers. He didn't trust that the future will necessarily be like the present and the past. And that's the big problem.
right? So when I got started with Vic Hunter, and I'll probably tag Vic. When I got started with Vic, I said, okay, you know, well, how does this stuff work? And he said, well, the key to, to everything is getting a customer to buy a second time. I said, well, how, how come that's the case? You know, couldn't we just make a profit on the first on the first order? And he said, well, because the customer that buys a second time is five times more valuable than the customer that only buys once or something like that. I said, well, where'd you find that out? He said, well, we did this study back a few years ago. Okay. Well, and, and so he said, anything you can do, call them, drop in and visit them, give them, you know, 50% off, whatever you can do to get them to buy a second time they'll be worth five times more. And I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. When you did that study, did you have lots of incentives to get the customer to buy a second time? He said, no. Those were just the customers that did it on their own. And see, here's the rub. The customers that did it on their own are customers that did it on their own. For some reason, they like you. Probably not measurable. Probably even if you called them up, they may not even know why, right? The catalog was on their desk that day. And... So unprompted, the multi-buyers were worth five times more than the, the one-time buyers. But now you change the game. Now you incentivize. You incentivize lots of one-time buyers to buy a second time, which they might not have done on their own. That's not a bad thing. I'm not arguing that it isn't, but it changes the game. You understand? And so in order to get really good numbers, you want three, four, five years track record. And what we would do is we would set up your... Marketing, we'd say, okay, here's how many customers you had in 2017, okay, or something. And here's the amount of money you spent. Here's the amount of money you spent renewing your customers. Here's the amount of money you spent with your house file, which we'll say were older customers or leads or something. And here's the amount of money you spent prospecting. And then the next year, here's how much, here's how many customers you generated, and here's what they were worth. And we can model that from your numbers. Now, the, the joke of it all is, is that most of the mailing companies that primarily used mail in those days didn't know how many pieces they mailed. I would have to go back to accounting and get the post uh, the U.S. Postal Service mailing receipts to know how many they mailed out or call the printer or somebody uh, because they didn't track that. You know, that was just ad budget. We didn't track how many pieces we mailed to generate. We didn't know our averages. We didn't know them at all. So don't be surprised if you don't know them at all, right? And there's a lot of ways to skin a cat on that, that thing. Anyway, so then we would model it and we would see how their spend generated the number of customers in the next year. And we would do the bathtub model and assume a certain amount of degradation. We could assess the flows and and model the growth or lack of growth that the company was experiencing. Then we would apply that to the future and we would look at a, an optimization of the return on investment in marketing dollars and by segment. So anyway, sounds complicated. It's really not. It's really not. This is a good article because it connects the dots between, between lifetime value and recency frequency monetary. Most don't talk about customer segments. The key is customer segments. How valuable are your segments? Now you got to look at it that way.
it gets to be quite a project. <laughs> and if all you look at is the averages, you really don't know how to manipulate it. But the truth is, it's not an easy thing to manipulate. It's really not. What you can manipulate is the offer and the target lists or the target audience. And th those are the things that you can, you can manipulate. And then they, over time, generate the lifetime value. If you think in terms of manipulating the lifetime value, you may be shooting yourself in the foot, like doing anything you can to get a second order. That may not produce the lifetime value you're after. But I can tell you that in mail, the lifetime value is generally mail-acquired customers are generally four times more valuable than digital-acquired customers. And that you can manipulate. So the methodology, the list, the offer, those things, the fundamentals you can, you can change on, an, on a campaign-by-campaign campaign basis. And the way we do that is by testing. And so that's where I would start. If you want to have best practices, you need to have a testing system. And that testing system can roll out into your, into your digital and your e email and all the other stuff that you do. But the foundation can be, should be, mail. That's crazy, I know. I'm probably the only one who says that. And um, that's why, that's <laughs> But it makes a lot of money. So have a great day. Like and share. Sorry I went so long. It's a Friday. Okay, I go longer on a Friday. Have a great day. Like and share. Your friends will know you're smart. I hope. Bye.